Wow, that was like the best one you've ever done. Good thing it's not more than one note. Uh, good morning, everybody. That, uh, what I wanted to uh, tell you this morning, first off, was uh, the up-and-coming schedule, uh, which uh, is, has gotten, uh, to our delight, more complicated, but maybe not to yours. <laughs> I'll clarify. Uh, so Christmas and New Year's is on Sunday, so we wouldn't have had class then anyway. Uh, the week in between, and I had our... Good man, Alan, in the back, give you that tiny little calendar that you could barely see. So I should have made a slide. I think next week I'll make a slide, but just to let you know now. So the week in between Christmas and New Year, uh, Chris and I and Maggie will be in Arizona. Uh, and then a, uh, uh, a very generous, gracious uh, couple people uh, gave Chris and I a gift, and that gift entails us. Uh, not being here, uh, it's uh, to go somewhere else. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm terrible at announcements. I don't know how to do them. We're we're going on vacation again, but this uh, we had already planned the Arizona trip, and then this came up, which is a great blessing, and we're so grateful, and we're going to take advantage of it because it is a great blessing, and so that's from the January 5th to the 15th, and that will be therefore. Um, we come back from Arizona on the 2nd, and we have the 3rd and the 4th there, which we could have class those two days, and then uh, we're leaving again on the 5th, and we'll be back till the 15th, and so it's going to be a long break. Uh, not, it's, again, it's not something that we planned. I would have never planned anything of that length, but uh, you know, we, we were blessed with something in that we would truly like to enjoy that. So I know it's a bit of a bummer, but uh, you'll survive, I'm sure. If I come back and the church is like gone and no one comes back again, then I'll be like, all right, well, at least we had fun. So I wanted to take a chance. I asked the board of directors for permission even. So they said, well, uh, one of the board of directors said, why don't you stay and I'll go. And uh, that was that was Alan. Thanks, Alan. Um, so, yeah. All right, let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God for our opportunity to be together and to hear his word and to be grateful uh, and thankful and for just the, the wonderful revelation that we find all throughout his word. Uh, and so with humility and reverence, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for another day in your world, your creation. You have made us in your image. We are in union with the one who is your image, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks to you and thanks to his sacrifice, we have been blessed beyond what we could ever have imagined. To have eternal life, to be in union with your Son, to be able to call you Father, all through the incredible work and sacrifice that Jesus did on our behalf through the blood of his cross. We thank you, Father, for your spirit and therefore for the trinity in which you have saved us and now you guide us uh, and you 
provide for us, and we are we have everything that we need, and the promises galore of that you will always be for us and not against us. So, Father, as we uh, turn to your word this morning, and also offer up our voices of, in thanksgiving to you as we sing, we are grateful, and we ask for your blessing upon our time together. We ask in Christ's name, Amen. All rise, please. Glory to the newborn King, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born. Bethlehem, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King.
Alright, uh, we'll start in Matthew uh, 6. Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we continue to study the Lord's Prayer. And uh, my goal is to continue to look at it as a whole so so don't, we don't get lost uh, in the details, sort of, which is easy to do. Uh, fortunately, it's short, so we can take it in very quickly. And uh, as we look at it, we're uh, going to emphasize certain aspects of, of the prayer. And uh, as I've been saying, everything is here. Everything that you could legitimately pray for would fall under the categories that you find here. So in Matthew 6, 9, Jesus said, pray, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, last time we uh, spoke of the fact that uh, when we pray, our voices are going to heaven, our thoughts, uh, and directly to uh, the throne of God in heaven. We must remember that, that we're not praying to some, it's not um, limited to earth. It's going directly to heaven. Uh, But what we want to look at uh, this morning is the fact that if you notice here on earth as it is in heaven immediately shows us that there's some something wrong that earth and heaven are not the same and that the will of God is not here uh, and it is in heaven but it's not on earth and that shows us that there's a conflict and so and that's what we're in the midst of and then, so those are the first three petitions are to God, to His glory, uh, His kingdom, His will, and heaven. And then in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. This is all our needs, and we are to be content with what we have. And forgive us our debts, as we also for, have forgiven our debtors. In Luke's account, uh, it's uh, sins. Forgive us our sins in Luke so the both are here, and debt, uh, sin is therefore seen as a debt to God that we do uh, every day. So forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. And that last petition is about our walking the narrow road that leads to life. So on earth as it is in heaven shows us that the creation has fallen into a conflict with heaven. Uh, In the beginning, God would walk in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and so there was no conflict. But after the fall, there was, and it continues. Uh, When we say, therefore, our Father is in heaven, so our prayers... No matter what's going on down here, and no matter how much of the world or people in the world are rejecting God and uh, uh, fighting against God, and they're fighting against us, causing us suffering, persecuting us. Um, if, if all, and a lot of things are going to go way worse. You know, the tribulational period, as we know, is the worst time the earth has ever seen. It's going to get way worse here. Uh, despite that, our prayers go to heaven. 
And what's in heaven? God, our Lord Jesus, God's will, absolute perfect peace. Uh, our Lord sits at the right hand of God. He's above all rule and authority. So though there is a conflict, uh, the, the end of this conflict or the result of it, call it angelic conflict or invisible war, uh, the, it's a foregone conclusion that God is going to accomplish all his good pleasure, as he says in Isaiah 46. It's a mystery to us, though, that uh, we know that everything that has happened throughout history has been planned and decreed by God. Now, God didn't create sin. He didn't create evil. He didn't cause the fall. Uh, but everything is predetermined. And it's a mystery to us because God didn't cause sin or evil, and yet it exists in his world that he is sovereign over. And, uh, and so this has all been planned. And for instance, you know, Jesus Christ is the one who resolves this conflict. And it would seem on the surface that, you know, God made, he made his creation as kind of an experiment. It went bad. And then God was sort of like, wow, what do I do now? You know, I better, and say the fall of the angels. He said, wow, that, you know, that was a bummer. What, maybe we'll create man. Man falls. Another bummer. You know, what do I do? Is God reactionary? And we find out, no, he's not. That Jesus Christ was, before the foundation of the world, predestined, as Peter says in Acts 2, I have it in my notes here somewhere, uh, Acts 2.23, Jesus Christ was predestined to go to the cross, predestined to die, predestined to be resurrected. Predestined means that God, that's not God looking down the corridors of time. It doesn't work with uh, sovereign omniscience that uh, God had caused this. And so everything is caused by God. And this gives us, it's, it should, I hope so, it gives us great comfort. Though it's very difficult to wrap our minds around it. You know, why would God create Satan knowing that he would fall? Why would God create man knowing he would fall? There's a lot of, because the result of that fall has been a lot of misery. A lot of pain and misery in people's lives. There is enormous amount of sin in the world. And the reason why? Well, God made man in his image and gave man a choice. God put the garden, uh, sorry, the garden of Eden, yes, but God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. He put it there. And he gave man a choice. If, if we don't have choice, we're just animals. The image of God means choice. The image of God means a will and an intellect, a personality, which animals don't have. And because of the result of our bad decisions, there's an enormous amount of sin and evil in the world, which God dealt with with the flood at the first, leaving just Noah and his family but then even after Noah and his family, then you have the Tower of Babel, right? It's man never does anything good. Um, and because we are what we are, we're all going to cause a lot of our own suffering. Our sins cause suffering in our own lives and in the lives of others. And others are going to cause suffering for us. 
Peter writes, we use this verse all the time for this, in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Right, so Christ came into a world that was at war with heaven. He's the one from heaven, and the world made war against him. But he overcame it. And we must always remember how he overcame it. Not by fighting back, but by giving his life. I think Satan could have ever imagined that such a thing would be done. Of course not. So, sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. You're blessed. So what is Jesus says this, right? Go look at Matthew, go back to chapter 5. Right, the last beatitude. Look at Matthew 5:10. Blessed are those who have persecuted who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, well, so we see heaven shows up a lot. We often think of it as just well, it's up there somewhere, you know, it's it's just a place, but it's much more. Uh, and we'll, we'll continue to see that. But heaven is the uh, place of God, the place of holiness, the place of his will, the place where we want to go. And Christ has opened the door to it for us. Um, is earth, our, we're citizens of heaven in, in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, earth is not our home. Jesus said, I go to heaven to prepare a place for you. Right? It's our it's our home, it's our future abode. And uh and so so is it just a place? Well it's not because also we recognize, as Peter points out to us also in the book of Revelation, that God is going to destroy this earth, make another one, and the new Jerusalem is going to be here, like on the earth. I don't buy the satellite city thing. I think it I think it's on the earth. But if you want Satellite City, you go for it. Um, so is that heaven? Well, wait a minute. I say, well, it's earth. I don't want to spend eternity here. But what will here be? Oh, it won't be like it is now. We can't imagine. But that is our destiny. And for one reason, heaven, uh, earth that made war with heaven... God sent his son to earth to defeat the enemy. And he did it not by, you know, he didn't ride into Jerusalem on his big white steed, did he? He rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, as prophesied, humble. You know, allowed Pilate to do what he did, allowed the Jews, the, the Sanhedrin, to do what they did to him. Herod, as well, beat him half to death. Didn't even open his mouth. So, <coughs> he said, blessed are you, look at verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. And there it is again. Heaven. 
For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so, uh, you know, your will, this part of the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, that obviously means that we are to desire God's will. Like, and we know that. But in, our, in prayer, we're seeking God's will. Right? Uh, none of us could say that we perfectly do God's will. So, you know, why? What's the disconnect? I talk to God a lot about this. Uh, it's amazing to me is how much as I've grown to know him and love him, and yet still there is a fierce desire to sin within me. I just want to kill it. <laughs> and God said, no, you have to deal with it. And all of us do. But it also is not just, you know, your will be done for me. We pray for others. Uh, we desire His will in our lives. That would minimize the suffering that we cause for ourselves. Doing God's will does not come with, it's not cause suffering. Doing God's will will cause others to persecute you, but it certainly minimizes the suffering of sin that we cause in ourselves. Uh, and we all desire that. But we also desire God's will in the lives of others, and as Christ makes clear here, even our enemies. And that's what we should desire for them. God's will. And this gives us the ability to handle the suffering that they bring upon us with grace and power. How do I handle those who persecute me? You love them. That's what, that's what makes you the overcomer. That you love them, you pray for them, you desire God's will in their lives. Therefore, and when you do that, you don't take it personal. It's really the key to handling undeserved suffering, is divine love, agape love towards others. You're hurting me, but I want God's will for you. You're taken from me, I want to give to you. You've insulted me, I want to pray for you. And it makes you the overcomer. It's the key to it. Your will, Father, as it is in heaven. So the conflict rages on. Heaven and earth are in conflict. There's a, a battle that we see in Revelation 12 where Michael the archangel is fighting other fallen angels. They're fighting in heaven. Uh, heaven and earth are in conflict, but Christ and only Christ has made peace. But it's not for everybody, is it? Right? It's not peace on earth. We saw the verse, I think, twice this week in Luke chapter 2. It's peace with men with whom God is pleased. When the angels proclaim, as we just sang about, when the angels proclaim to the shepherds, that's what they say. They don't say peace on earth. Uh, and so, what, the, the thing that, as we also uh, pray for others in, in our own prayer lives, we seek God's will for ourselves, uh, and, and really exploring with God, the, what are the reasons uh, why that you don't follow His will in what areas of your life that it is more susceptible to your own will, that you won't follow God's will, or it's harder to... Those are areas of weakness, areas where you sin the most, and they're hurting your spiritual life, and 
you know, prayer is the place to explore with God. And I, I mean, I think we all know that the the way to overcome anything is to see the truth of it. You know, why why is God's will so much better than my own? And, and when your eyes open to that. You gain great power over the things that normally would drag you down because you see them for what they are. You know, we think certain things are going to give us pleasure. And time and time and time again, we find out that they don't, and yet we return to them, thinking this time's going to be different. And why are we so dumb like that? As uh, God says, it said to Isaiah, in Isaiah, chapter 1 of Isaiah, from the top of your head to the bottom of your foot, there's no soundness in you. That's God's evaluation of man. <laughs> Nothing in you is good. And so, you know, uh, we, what we have to do is see. And when we see with the eyes of our heart what is truly um, the, the graciousness and, and the loveliness of God's will and the the terrible uh, price that sin that it costs us is terrible price. Was it uh, that phrase from to Chuck Schumer? I forget. He's one of those big the big preachers down there in Texas. Uh, you know, sin will cause you to pay more than you want to pay, stay longer than you want to stay. And there's a third one. What's that? Chuck Swindoll. That's him. Yeah. Chuck Schumer's. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I don't listen to him. No, he's. Ah, oh, he's terrible. I, you shouldn't say that in church, though. Pray for your rulers is what we do here. Swindoll. Thank you. Right, the, the exacting cost of sin. We have to see it for what it is. Swindoll has that. He's got it on his desk. Is that's what I when I heard him teach this. I used to listen to him on the radio, um, and he reminds. He said, "I remind myself of this every day. That sin costs you more than you want want to pay." Now that guy's been in the scripture. He's old now. I know he's got a. A big, big batch of white hair on his head. You know, he's pretty, he's been in this at this for a long time, and yet still he's susceptible, as we all are, to to sin. So, we're in this conflict. There's there's something wonderful here. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. He is the image of the invisible God. Through Christ and Christ alone is God, deity, manifested in a way that we can see. Moses couldn't see the face of God, and we can't. Because Jesus Christ is the manifestation, the expression of deity. And so that's where we're going to go. Go to uh, Colossians 1. I have fallen in love with this passage. So the application that we're going for here is that we're, in our prayer lives, we're seeking God's will, not just for us, but for others. 
and that we realize that only in Christ is there peace. Nowhere else. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. There is no one else, nowhere else, where there is peace for man's soul. It's in Christ alone. At first glance, it may seem that for want of a better alternative, God had to save his failed experiment with humanity. Made man, man fell, and God's experiment failed. And then, in some kind of reluctant sacrifice, God took this course of sending his son to save us. But that's not how it is. The truth of the matter is, is that God was pleased to send his son. In Isaiah 53.10, it says, the prophet says that God was pleased to crush him. Pleased. To do what? To reconcile the world to himself and so that Jesus would have supremacy in everything. And that's what this passage says. God's solution to the conflict was not a reaction to a fall as if God was... You know, it, what it does is place God in time, and then you know He has to react to things, and that's how we are. But God's not that. Whatever He predetermines, He does. What a, and and the predetermination of Christ was something that had been before the foundation of the world. It's not a reaction to anything. In this passage in Colossians one fifteen through twenty, is a poem. And the poem has two parts. A lot of scholars think it's a a hymn, an early church hymn. But it doesn't really fit extremely well with being a hymn, but it's definitely poetry. It's Christology. Uh, This poem is Christology. And it's one of the, if not the most striking Christological passages in the New Testament, in the Bible. Um, God has in this passage but one purpose. And that is the rulership of the risen Christ over a kingdom filled with new humanity, a new creation, regenerated in perfect righteousness, and that this was God's design all along. There's a great mystery here, as there always is in things like this, because God is not in time, and uh, you know he's, not, he's just not like us. We can't understand the depth of his wisdom to be able to do something like this. But this has, as I said, it's always been God's design. The man Jesus is the perfect expression of God. And as God, he died and rose again. And through his death, he made perfect peace. What it would take for God to accomplish this peace between heaven and earth would be this cost. The cost is the blood of Christ. It is a monumental cost. That he would sacrifice his own son, forsake his own son, and pour or judge the uh, sins of the world on him. But for us, for believers, Jesus Christ is all things. Uh, And even as we're tempted by the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, uh, when life seems nothing but vanity, a.k.a. the book of Ecclesiastes, we can remember the, these poetic lines. And uh, when something is, it's got parallelism in it, and, and it would make it easy to memorize. 
So uh, a lot of people in the ancient world were illiterate, and in the first few centuries, nobody had a Bible. Uh, Books and paper were very expensive. Most people did not have books. For a lot of the early church, all their learning was oral. Uh, they, they, They didn't have written stuff. And so, if you can imagine, as a worker, you know, you're out in the fields, it's very agricultural. If you had this memorized, right, this would bring great joy to you. As it would always be there, ready to go, to remind you that your toil is not in vain. All right, so look at Colossians 1.15. And he is the image of the invisible God. The Greek word icon here, it can be used to mean like an image of, uh, on a coin, like, a, like Abe Lincoln's face or George Washington's face on a quarter. Uh, they would put an image of Caesar on a coin. You know, this famously when Jesus, when they were trying to trap Jesus, saying, could we or should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he said, give me a coin. Whose picture is on it? And that's an icon. So. <clears throat> It, here, in the uh, firstborn of all creation. So, a long time ago, a guy by the name of Arius became very popular. He's around third century, and he taught that Jesus wasn't God. And he used this. This was his main passage. Look, he's born, right? And the Jehovah's Witnesses are the the Ariuses of the the modern times. And they they interpret this the same way. And they actually, it's interesting to see in their Bible that they add a word, a few words here to make sure that uh, because it says that he in him all things are created, and they put in the word other. So in the Jehovah's Witness Bible, it says in him all other things were created, because if they keep it the way it is, Jesus is not a created being. So anyway, but we know this, of course. Uh, the Lord Jesus is the only expression of deity that we can see. Uh, He's the only expression, I should have reworded that. I mean, not that there is other expressions that we can't see, uh, but this, this is it. The expression of God is in Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn... This common Greek word, prototakos, fun to say, uh, is uh, it would mean the firstborn of the family. So the firstborn son. Now, why is this here? Well, it's certainly that if Christ is, and we continue with it, look at verse 16, for by him, it's really in him. I'll show you that in a second. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. All things. And another wonderful thing in here, we could spend a month studying this passage, is uh, the, you know, you've, you've probably seen a list in other passages that look a lot like this. Rulers and authorities. Uh, and these are, in the context of other passages, they're fallen angels. And Jesus is the creator of them. And part of the reason this would be this would fit nicely in Colossians is because the Colossians were being taught uh, false doctrines about uh, worship of angels, which was an early Gnosticism. 
they, they were being infiltrated with some kind of uh, Jewish mysticism uh, that was trying to rob them of the gospel and rob them of grace. It was a false doctrine in which other creatures were to be worshipped. And as Paul is put in here, like Jesus is the creator of everything. Absolutely everything. And so, uh, firstborn means what? Well, just what it means in, uh, in the law, in the Old Testament, and in, uh, actually in most cultures at that time, that the firstborn son was the heir of everything. So, remember the, the conflict between Jacob and Esau. Right? Esau is the firstborn son. And so, but Esau sold his birthright. And uh, here, so what this means, firstborn, means that Jesus has this birthright. He is the heir of all things. Now, this poem has two parts. The first part is the old creation, or what we would say this, you know, the creation. So let's read it again. Uh, 15 and 16 are the first part. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. Now keep in mind there, there's three prepositions that he uses. Uh, In verse 16, by him, which is really in him. And then in verse uh, continuing, all things are created by him and for him. So we have in him, through him, and for him. And he's going to repeat that exactly in the second part. Now, verse 17 is a hinge of the poem. It's the middle part. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so that's and it's, hold together is perfect for holding together two parts. The first part is about creation. The second part is about the new creation. Verse 18. He is also the head of the body, the church. See, now we've moved here from creation to a new creation, which is the church. And why is the church a new creation? Well, God made us all new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Also, uh, Ephesians 4.24. We're to put on the new self, lay aside the old. And we're a new creation. And what we are is the body of Christ. That's a new creation. So, verse 18, he is also the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning. Now, this is a great word. This word beginning is arche in Greek, and it also means ruler, beginning or ruler. So, if you go back to verse 16, you're going to see a lot of parallels here, where he is, um, all things are created by him, whether thrones or dominions or rulers. Those are also the same word. They're archai. The archai is the plural of archai. These rulers created by him, whether they're earthly rulers or demonic beings that are in Satan's organization that are up in the atmosphere, um, either way, they are created by him. And he is, in verse 18, the archai, the beginning. So he's the one. And then firstborn from the dead. That means, again, we have the same word, prototakos. 
I just love saying it. Oh, it's up there. Pratatakas. But this time from the dead. So what does that mean? It means his resurrection. So this, when Jesus walks out of the tomb, he's in the same body, but it's changed, right? I mean, it even has the nail prints in it, so it's actually not completely something different, but yet it is something different. It's something new. A new creation. Firstborn from the dead, he's the first resurrected one. So, firstborn from the dead, the beginning. Oh, we go back. He's the head of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Now, this word "first place" it's only used here, and it is just means just that, first place. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. And through him, so the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness. Fullness of what? This is deity. We find this out in chapter 2 of Colossians. It's the fullness of deity to dwell in him. And now we're going to see our prepositions come back. In him, by him, for him. The fullness dwells in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. To himself. And there's the third preposition. Reconcile all things to himself, but really it means for himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And then we find heaven and earth again. Right? Heaven and earth are at the beginning in the first part and also in the last part or the new creation. So all on earth... And in the heavens were created by him, sorry, in him, by him, and for him, in verse 16. And the fullness is in him, peace is through him, and reconciliation is for him, in verses 19 through 20. And so what we have is the first creation, which fell. And that's why you have the rulers and principalities, or what are they? He doesn't use principalities. Uh, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. They're in the first part of the poem. Why? Because that's the old creation. They're not going to rule anymore. Satan's not going to rule the earth anymore. Someday. And this is a part of the application of this, is that we've got to wait for his return. And until then, we're new creation second part of the poem, living in the midst of the old creation, first part of the poem. And so while we're here, we're to know that our Lord Jesus Christ has conquered all enemies. Right? So there's, do, there's nothing on earth that I need fear because my Lord has conquered everything. He's the creator of all things. I'm in union with this one, this R.K., the one who is first place, and the one who is the heir of all things. That's my husband, my brother, my Lord, my master. I don't have to fear anything. All of us should be full of joy. Just being, just having him. I mean, that, so and this really, it gets to the heart of materialism, which is still a problem. It's a problem in the church. Right? What are, what are the materialism of the things of the earth? 
Yes, Christ created them, but they're temporary. We should enjoy them, absolutely enjoy them. We're told to enjoy them. But when they rule us, they become idols. And Jesus is the creator of all of these things. You don't worship the things created, you worship the creator. Now, the Colossians had been delivered. The Colossian church is generally made up of Gentiles. In that part of the world, which is in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, they, they called it the Roman province of Asia back then, uh, they, they're all brought up under pagan gods. So I was reading or listening to this book about uh, India. I, I, I didn't finish it because I had, I had it up to my eyeballs in... <laughs> And in this, you know, it, it was uh, meaning that it was it's about the poverty in India. And it was it's a true story about a couple of families that live in a slum in Mumbai, India. And it is horrid. The living conditions, horrid. As I said, you know, a homeless camp here would be miles ahead uh, above it in terms of um, comfort even. Uh, so, uh, but... What you find there, too, I think in India, there's something like 300 million gods. 300 million. And when they want something or need something, these poor people, they pray to, sacrifice to these gods. They all have their favorite gods. And they celebrate these gods while these gods give them absolutely nothing because, well, they don't exist. But they worship them. There's millions of them. And... uh, you know, in Colossae, they, they were had something similar to that. You know, paganism always has a, a pantheon of multiple gods. The Colossians were delivered from this, and by faith were under the grace of God, like we are. But what came into their church was false doctrine to try and drag them back, just like it does to us. We've been delivered from falsehood, we've been delivered from sin, we've been delivered from fear. And, and worry and anxiety and bitterness. We've been delivered from all of this, and yet what comes upon us, and it's constant, is the temptations to draw us back to what we were. He's the firstborn from the dead, and we're risen with him. Now, uh, there's a kind of interesting thing here where he says, in him. Uh, in the old creation, including the demons that are behind false religion, all created by Christ, uh, again, it's somewhat odd that in the front here, and that's why the New American Standard translates it for uh, by him. So if you look again at verse 16, it says for by him, but that preposition is en, E-N in Greek, and en means in. And a lot of scholars think it's because of this. Why would Paul say in? He says through, it uses dia, through. Uh, in the second instance, all things are created through him and for him. But why start with in him? And some think that he's referring back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning. And that in Greek, beginning, that's arche. Uh, it's written in Hebrew, but the Greek translation of that would be arche. And Jesus is the arche in verse 18 of our passage. So in the beginning, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
he's a creator of all things, ruler and creator of the new creation, and therefore through him all the old things have passed away and new things have come. The link between the old and the new is the same link that's between the Mosaic law, the old covenant, and the new covenant. It's the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is the link that takes us from the old to the new. And all of us are members of the new. Uh, go to Hebrews chapter six. Uh, Hebrews chapter eight. I mean, Hebrews chapter eight. So, you know, when we're praying, when we're waiting, you know, wouldn't it be great for the Lord to come back today? Sure would. I don't think any of us would protest. Would you be sad for leaving anything behind? Right? And so, just that thought in itself shows us what these truths have done for our souls. That we're not married to this earth. We're not. We're we're not in love. I mean, we love our things, good things, and but you know, are we in love with them? Do we worship them? Do, would we, if we were separated from earth by death or resurrection, would we be longing for what we left behind? No, and we know it. And see, we know, we inherently know by the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, and His truth that we're a part of this new creation. Not the old. And the new comes with it a lot of responsibilities, too. As we wait for him, what kind of people should we be? And uh, that's a, there's a, Peter writes that wonderfully in Second Peter chapter 3. Uh, so, um, in Hebrews 8, 6, We've got is the firstborn is the heir of all things, firstborn of all creation in Colossians, and firstborn from the dead is the heir of the new creation, which is resurrection, not resurrection, but resurrection. Excuse me. So Hebrews eight six says, but now he has obtained, meaning Jesus Christ. Now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by which he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. And what is that covenant? Well, it's listed right there and then the new covenant. It's right there in that passage in front of you and it's a a direct copy from, word for word, uh, uh, transliterated by the writer of Hebrews from Jeremiah chapter 31. 31 through 33, I think it is. Word for word. The new covenant that God promised Israel, here it is. And now, if you're a Reformed theologian, or which they're generally replacement theology people, you would say that, well, see, the church is now the new Israel, and Israel has been uh, you know, removed, the covenants have been removed from Israel, and uh, I, I can easily see that that is a false doctrine. I don't understand why people would follow it, but there are quite a few of them. Um, and so we have this, you know, as I like to say, the, the, the Scripture is written for adults. <laughs> and we so often categorize two, 
we have to be careful. We we categorize or um, you know place things, separate things, categorize things wrongly. If if the church is the beneficiary of the new covenant, and we are, does that mean Israel isn't? And the answer is no. Can we receive the new covenant and Israel receive the new covenant in the future? Why not? But because of this, the, there's some theologians who say there's two new covenants, and one for the church and one for Israel. And, you know, it's just a way of classifying it so you don't trip over your theology. And it works. Two new covenants works. I, I, don't, I don't buy it. I think it's one. There's one new covenant. And the churches, in my opinion, the church, and there's a lot of who, I got this opinion from someone else, not that I came up with it. But um, the churches receive the spiritual blessings of the new covenant, not the material ones. With this new covenant, in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah, there's a bunch of promises about material blessings. And those will come in the future to Israel. But we are beneficiaries of it. And notice, what's look down at verse 10, just to take a part of this. I will put my law into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. So this is a new covenant, part of the new covenant. Notice that as new creatures, what doesn't, wouldn't it make sense to think, well, wouldn't everybody in the Old Testament have the law in their mind? But this means something else. If, if it's a new covenant, this writing of the law on the heart is something different than like I know the law. You know, It means that it's actually etched into my, my very person. And we find this to be true because part of the new covenant was the promise of the Holy Spirit to indwell believers. And we're indwelt by the Spirit. So notice this. That now that we are a part of the new creation, the law is written right on our hearts, and we live this. Not the Mosaic law now, just the, the, the very morals and ethics of God. Now go down to 9.11, chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And that, my friends, is for us. And again, notice, it's his blood, which refers as a, as a term for the entire sacrifice on the cross. It, it includes his physical death. It includes his spiritual death with the, his judgment, the judgment of the sins of the world, the forsaking of his father, and, and all of it. And by that sacrifice, he opened up. See, now the old Holy of Holies was where? On the earth. Where's this one? This one's in heaven. And this is the one that we're a part of. So, this is your absolute destiny. Right? No, no one can take this from you. Each of us, now when we're praying, right, so when we pray, right, this is, we say, Father. And who was, and we noted this, who was the first Jewish man to walk around calling God his Father? It was Jesus Christ. They wanted to kill him for doing that. 
I can't remember. I just looked at it in the Gospels. I can't remember off the top of my head what passage it is. But um, they said they wanted to kill him because he was making God to be his own father and therefore making himself equal with God. Because of that, they wanted to kill him. But this was prophesied. Uh, Go to Psalm 89. Just a couple more passages. We'll wrap it up. Psalm 89, verse 26. This is one of those where, wait a minute, this is David talking. Well, yeah, but it's, it, it wouldn't fit David uh, for obvious reasons. And so, there's only one that it fits, and it's David's son. The Lord Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. Psalm 89, 26. He will cry to me, you are my father. There is no other passage in the Old Testament that is like this. This is it. There are other passages that where Israel calls God their father as a nation. Uh, and there's very few of those. I think there's only two or three of them. Where God, and God says to Israel, you're my firstborn. There, there's another passage for that too. But this one here is a he. It's not Israel. It's a person. He will cry to me, you are my father. Wait a minute. It was Jesus who was saying this all the time. Father in heaven. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn. See that? Who's the firstborn? It's Jesus. And this is him as heir of all things. I shall also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. What is that? That's the archaic. The beginning, the ruler, the one who has first place in everything. My loving kindness will keep him forever. Loving kindness is covenant love. Chesed is that Hebrew word. It refers to actual God's promise and love. My loving kindness will keep him forever. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him, so I will establish his descendants forever. There you are. There you are in the Bible, because you're one of the descendants. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Why can't this be David particularly? Well, David's dead. David's, uh, his throne isn't forever. But yet, and, and the prophet... Nathan went to David in Second uh, Samuel chapter, First Samuel, Second Samuel chapter seven, saying, "Your throne will be established forever." We call it the Davidic covenant. Your throne will be established forever. So, who is the great one of the world? It certainly isn't me, and that wasn't probably not the first thing that came to your mind. Was probably Pastor Joe? No. no. <clears throat> Who is the great one of history? Who is the great one of everything? Not no other person, angel, no other created thing, no other person in the history of the world remotely comes close. Like you've got here's the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who does everything. And you say, who's second? You know, who's the, who's the next greatest? Like a lot of people would say, well, the Apostle Paul and maybe Moses or something. Great, or whoever. But how far below Christ are they? Infinite. Nobody could do this. That's why one of the names for Jesus is the last Adam. Because Adam's created perfect and he blew it. That's why one of his other titles is the son of David. Because David was the great king of Israel in which Israel put all of their hopes and he blew it. We all have. And yet there's, here's this one. The Lord Jesus Christ. Creator of heavens and earth having made peace through his cross. And so one last passage. Matthew 28, please. The very end of the Gospel of Matthew. So when we're praying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remember, we're not only speaking in heaven, but heaven has been made to be at peace with the earth. With all the earth? No. That day's coming. But with people, individuals with whom God is pleased, as the angels sang to the shepherds. You and I have peace with God. You and I are citizens of heaven. Our voices are heard in heaven, and our destiny is in heaven, and our mind should be in heaven. Not that, you know, We've got a lot of work to do here. This is what Jesus is actually going to reveal here to us and to his disciples. In verse 18, Matthew 28, 18. Many people call this the Great Commission. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. See that? We see nothing but conflict between heaven and earth, but then in light of Jesus' victory, heaven and earth are at peace with one another. But certainly, as I just said, not all of the earth and not everybody on the earth, but with those believers, all of us born again and saved. This Lord of yours who sits at the right hand of God is causing you, he's praying for you all the time. And it's through him and through his name that we pray. And it's just, it's just such a wonderful blessing just to have him. Who is the great one? This great one who is miles greater than anybody else is yours. He belongs to you. You belong to him. Incredible. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go. You have work to do. What work? Shine that light, which is Him, through you. Everybody has to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody will and will be judged by Him. But before that time comes, there's people in our lives, around us, our neighbors, our friends, in which we, you know, we, we must be ready and able and willing and open. 
Because if you love and adore the Lord Jesus Christ, and you would want everybody to love and adore him like you do, to know him like you do. And, and certainly, like our, even our enemies are included here. So again, getting back to the prayer, your will be done, not just for me, but for everybody. I desire it. And Jesus is telling us, it's a command, go and proclaim it. Baptize them in the name of the Trinity and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And don't be afraid, because I'm with you always. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for prayer. Thank you for um, the opportunity that we have uh, to know you and to worship you. Thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who made it all possible. And Father, um, may we be witnesses and lights to the world as you have told us to be, as your Son has commanded us to be. We ask in Christ's name, amen. All right, we'll take our offering and answer do it. Let's pray for our offering. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege and opportunity to give. And we give as your believer priests in honor of you. We ask, Father, that through uh, these uh, gifts that we would uh, use them to your will and to continue to promote your word in the world. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Of the whole song. That's a toe tapper, isn't it? All right, let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for our gathering. Thank you for all you are and all you do, and our Lord and Savior, uh, for his love, his sacrifice, and for his resurrection. Thank you that we have him. Uh, Father, the closing moments of our service are dedicated to anyone who has not come to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you're listening to me and you have not believed in Christ, I beg you to please consider who he is. He is the Son of God who's become a man and died for the sins of the whole world. He's died for your sins. He is taking your place in judgment. And no other Savior in the world could claim that. He is the very Son of God, the image of the invisible God. And he died on your behalf. If you believe upon him, you will be saved. His death is your salvation. He died for your sins on the cross and was resurrected on the third day. Believe upon him by faith and you will be saved. Thank you, Father, for all you are. In Christ's name, amen.